Let us give thanks to he who walks behind the rose, who protects our crops. The God of sacrifice. The God who walked on the face of the earth. He who walks behind the rose. speak to me in my dreams and God has told me that it is now our time time to make sacrifice time to kill welcome to now playing's children of the corn retrospective series it is written a leader will come from the corn part of the now playing Stephen King movie review series I offer this to he who walks behind the rose Hosted by Stuart. This is my game. I've played it before and on better courts than yours. Jacob. He thought he had great spirit. And Arnie. Question me not, Malachi. I act according to his will. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new movie review based on the works of Stephen King. I've read the book, and for the first time in my life I know my purpose. This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Did your mother teach you how to talk like that? Only when your name came up. Listener discretion is advised. The time of judgment is now at hand. Let the harvest begin. Outlander! We have your podcast! Discussing Children of the Corn, starring Peter Horton. Linda Hamilton, R.G. Armstrong, John Franklin, and Courtney Gaines, directed by Fritz Kirsch. I'm Arnie, your corny co-host of Now Playing. <laughs> Stuart in L.A., bring me some butter. I'm gonna need it for this corn. <laughs> and this is He Who Podcasts Behind the Rose, Jacob. And we are here at the end, or the beginning of the end, of our Stephen King Night Shift year-long retrospective series. Oh, thank goodness. When we started, I was telling Stuart, you know, that might just be too much to do in one year. All this Night Shift. He was right. <laughs> <laughs> My attitude is get it all out. I mean, get through it. I knew that this is going to be the hardest. And you guys, if you've lost faith, if you hate the Stephen King series now because of these Night Shift movies, I do think we're going to get back to some more iconic works very, very soon. I do think Children of the Corn actually has a little bit of iconic status, mostly for this first movie here. But yeah, this has been a tough road to hoe, so to speak. I'm glad we're at the end of Night Shift, even though it's going to take us nine podcasts to get through the last story. And it's a story we've already covered in our first episode. Disciples of the Crow was a Children of the Corn adaptation from the Night Shift collection. A dollar baby that came out only one year before the actual theatrical release. And it may stand to be the best Children of the Corn of the bunch. <laughs> I think we all, or at least Stuart and I, remember liking the grittiness of that, even though it was more or less just a big long chase. One of the things I was interested in, though, like, what was the story behind these kids? I've never seen Children of the Corn. I wanted to know why they rose up against their parents. Now that I've seen this, I don't know if I want those answers, but I was at least intrigued by that dollar baby. Yeah, we're going to get all of the answers here and what is the longest running Stephen King series to date. Only one theatrical release, this first one, and then a very long life on video and the sci-fi network. 
you got to wonder who was watching them. Because it's a huge gap between this movie and the next one. It's eight years. It's not like this came out in the prime of the slasher movies. Children of the Corn, the original, came out March 9th, 1984, right at the high point of slasher films, and then nothing. You'd think that they'd be cranking those Children of the Corn out with the regularity of a Friday the 13th. But no, this is the only movie that's going to have Linda Hamilton, this director, Isaac, and these characters. All of these, it kind of begins and ends here. And this was really at a high point for Stephen King, though, because this is still one of the very first adaptations. I mean, if we put this in order, there was Carrie that came out in 76. We covered it. Salem's Lot. TV doesn't really count, but it came out then. Then we have, of course, The Shining, a major influence on King's life. Creep Show, which we still have yet to get to. Cujo, Dead Zone, Christine, and then Children of the Corn. So a lot of those movies that you promised listeners are more iconic and perhaps a little better than some of the Manglers and Graveyard Shift and Trucks. I mean... A lot of really iconic movies. I dare say Children of the Corn might be the beginning of the end. After that came Firestarter and Cat's Eye, which we liked but didn't do very well, and Maximum Overdrive. Well, this was done by a low-rent studio. This is New World Pictures, which I'd like to remind viewers that is Roger Corman. This is a man that fires the caterer when they use RC Cola instead of the generic brand Cola. I mean, he (laughs) works on the cheap, and this movie was made on the cheap. But I didn't realize this. You have been maligning New World for many years now on this podcast, Stuart. I have. Because in 1983, Corman sold New World. He had no part of Children of the Corn. He had no part of Generation X. None of that. This actually, for New World was big budget. But it was his company, and I do think they carry on his tradition of making low-budget, low-brow entertainment. Well, yes, no doubt. And the director who did this one, Fritz Kirsch, he was so excited to be doing this. He knew he'd have to work fast. He knew that it would have to be somewhat cheap, but he was told he'd have a budget of $1.3 million, which was just really big for this type of movie back then. What no one told him is 500000 of that had already gone to King. Here's 800000 making your movie (laughs) so that's why they have stephen king in the title of this movie they plug this let me tell you this is not children of the corn this is stephen king's children of the corn and all the promos the poster all the typeface they're not going to let you forget that this is from the man that gave us carrie in the shining the irony being he had to sue an arbitration for writing credit and was denied it and then he saw the movie and he's like yeah okay you can keep that Nobody wants the credit for this script, but, you know, we should get into it, I suppose. Arnie, why don't you give credit to the plot and we can start? Newly minted Dr. Burt Stanton, played by 30-somethings Peter Horton, is driving to Seattle with his longtime girlfriend, Vicki Baxter. Linda Hamilton, looking more Terminator than Terminator 2. Same year, it's Terminator. Vicky is harassing Bird about his lack of desire to marry or even sleep with the woman, but their on-the-road bickering is interrupted when on the back roads of Nebraska, Bert hits a boy standing in the street. Investigating, the doctor realizes the boy's throat was slit before the car hit him, and it happened just minutes before. So they put the dead boy's body in the trunk and try to contact the authorities. They stop at a local gas station where the grumpy attendant tells them to stay away from Gatlin, He's got religion. It's got a death curse. (laughs) Yes, I was definitely thinking of him. So instead, he steers them towards Hemingford about 10 more miles away. 
but the couple gets lost driving through a cornfield and eventually end up in Gatlin, which appears to be a ghost town. Further investigation shows the town isn't deserted, but instead inhabited only by children. See, three years earlier, the kids, led by creepy child preacher Isaac, conspired to murder all the adults in Gatlin in the worship of their god, who they call He Who Walks Behind the Rose. In the years since, the children have minded the farm to create their own gas hall but partnered with the old coot gas station attendant to keep their machines running. And on their 18th birthday, each child is sacrificed to their god. But Isaac has a competitor, the less spiritual, more bloodthirsty ginger Malachi. Malachi doesn't understand the rules Isaac puts forth. Who does? <laughs> Especially when he lets two young children, a boy named Job and his psychic sister Sarah, break his rules by playing games and listening to music. When the couple come to town, Isaac orders them captured and given as a sacrifice to he who walks behind the rose. The teens succeed in capturing Vicky, but Bert, aided by Job and Sarah, escapes. When Isaac refuses to allow Vicky to be used as bait, Malachi and his followers stage a revolt and string Isaac up on the corn crucifix. They then use Vicky as bait and lure Bert to the clearing place of worship. That night, during the sacrifice, he who walks behind the rose does take Isaac, but brings him back as a demon who breaks Malachi's neck. Bert and Vicky escape, along with Job and Sarah, and Job and Bert use the corn fuel to light a fire. An explosion rockets into the night, and the cartoon face of He Who Walks Behind the Rose is seen in that final blaze. And though the teens of Gatlin still want them dead, with their god gone, Vicky and Bert and Sarah and Job, now a newly adopted family, begin the long hike to Hemingford as credits roll. Now, I have seen only part of this movie before. I've seen actually no Children of the Corn film in total. But I gotta say, when I was a kid, this came out. I probably wasn't much older than Job when it was on cable. I couldn't watch this. This opening was so scary. It was so disturbing to me, the way that this movie began, that I literally, even though I would go on to be a horror fan and, and want to consume all these horrible nightmares... I couldn't watch this movie. I turned it off. I've always wondered if I came back to this, would it hold up? Would this opening be as scary as I remembered? That's funny, Stuart, because this was one of the first King films I watched, and it's because of the corn. Now, I don't want to sound <laughs> like I live in Hicksville, but... Not you, too. Everyone likes corn in these movies. What the hell? Do you remember, Stuart, the house I grew up in and how when you looked out my front door, what did you see but a giant freaking cornfield? And... It is easy when you are a child about Job's age, eight or nine, to get lost in the corn. And as a very young child, I was taking a shortcut to the mall, walking through the corn and got freaking lost and ran through the corn and cut myself up and had a horrible thing. And so I completely got fear of whatever walked behind those rows. And that lured me to this movie at that age. And then I didn't see it again for probably 20 years till I bought my very first house as an adult. And you look out the backyard and what do you see? Yes. <laughs> a whole bunch of corn. And because we were out in the country living alone without too many neighbors, my wife Marjorie was freaked the hell out. And I kept teasing her, he who walks behind the rose is coming. And she'd, you know, get freaked out because I worked nights as a college professor. I wouldn't get home till one or two. She was alone with the cornfield. So I DVR'd the hell out of this. So every time she went to TiVo, top thing recorded was Children of the Corn. So I probably see this movie a good dozen times or more before this review and i've never seen this film until i watched it 
for this review. But I remember seeing that VHS cover, that scythe and the corn, and there was something so scary about that in children. And you're right, Stuart, this opening, I wasn't cringing watching it now as an adult, but it's the best part of the film. I, I'm watching this opening when these children are attacking, and you know, you got the meat cutter and people getting cut up in this diner and blood spraying everywhere. I'm like, okay, this could be a fun film. As fun as any film about children <laughs> murdering their parents can be. But, you know, I like the aesthetic. Yeah, you know, I could go with this. It doesn't hold up. This is the highlight of the film, the first five minutes, but I did enjoy it and I could see it being scary as a kid. Yeah, not every movie dares to open with a small child watching his father get his throat slit while everyone else in the diner falls over from poisoning. I mean, this is just alarming. And mass murder done by evil kids, this is like the omen times 50 here. I mean, it is it is the ultimate evil kid movie. Yeah, and that's something very unusual coming from King. He normally has kids as a good force, but he did say they can also be pretty evil and harsh, and this is that side of it. It's also the side of King, though, that we've seen since Carrie, who likes to kind of point out the extremities of religious worship. We had Margaret White, Carrie's mother, and now here we have these children of religious parents taking that religion to the utmost extreme by sacrificing their parents. Or so they would have us think. I thought that's where this was going. They dropped some lines, but then you find out that whatever is behind this corn thing is a little different than extreme fanatic Christianity, which is what I thought was spurring it on from the beginning of the film. No, it's a rejection of that. I mean, the movie does begin in church. There's Reverend Case giving a sermon on a corn drought. So I'm putting two and two together thinking that this town is failing because they're not yielding the crops they need to survive. I mean, that was a big thing in the 80s. I mean, farm aid and he had movies like The River and Raggedy Man. I mean, it's never been easy to be a farmer, but in the 80s, it was well publicized how difficult the family farm was struggling. And I think that this movie kind of capitalized on that. That's the way I took this opening is that here's a community that tries to use religion as a band-aid while it dies from not having the right crops, these kids are going to do something about it. They're going to take a stand that the adults are too afraid to do. The irony being, in the early 80s, there was so much corn produced that the government was paying corn farmers to not farm corn. And in fact, the fields used here, the farmers were happy because they got paid twice. They charged the film company to use their fields and then got to charge the government to not harvest the corn. <laughs> that would be the last time that the farmers could probably could claim that they're making out like bandits. But okay. <laughs> but yeah, I see this as the same kind of thing where you have the adults who are not treating the land right. That's what the kids say is they defile the land. And I don't know if I trust what the kids say, though. They are murderers, mass murderers. And it's only one kid. There's one prophet among them. It's Isaac. And why would any kid listen to Isaac? Isaac is the kid that you beat up or that you're afraid of and you don't go near to because he's just so creepy. I mean, this movie gets one thing right in the scary department. It's this creepy Isaac. Is he a dwarf or is he just a kid with a strange voice? I always thought he was a kid with a strange voice. It turns out he does have a growth hormone deficiency and he's 23 when this movie is made. Wow. I did look at his picture on IMDb and he still has that childish look. So I did wonder if it was something like that. I suspected a Gary Coleman kind of syndrome going on. Okay, so that's what it was. And yeah, that's unnerving here. And what's really funny is that he was doing a lot of childlike roles. People love to work with him because he still looked like a kid, even though he was in his 20s. He had just come from doing an Atari 2600 commercial for a Star Trek game. That haircut, he was playing Kid Spock. And they looked at him, and they're like, yeah, that's a creepy 
creepy haircut. So that's why he has the haircut he has <laughs> is because he did a Spock game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with this opening in the diner and this Isaac, there's promise here. Like, yeah, this is a legitimately creepy character. I don't know if I if at eight I'm going to follow him. Maybe because he's so damn creepy. I am scared of this kid. And let's not ignore the fact. I mean, I spoiled it in the plot summary. He truthfully is a prophet for some spirit that is in the cornfield. He's not just making up crap in the playground. Some creature, demon, god, what have you, speaks to Isaac. But yeah, I agree with you both. Isaac is inspired casting. He is this movie's heart and soul and his impassioned delivery of this. Even when he's in this opening scene, he doesn't say a goddamn word, but he stands in that window and just watches and basically commands with his eyes all of those people to kill their parents and the adults around them. And I'm going to give a little bit of props also to his number two, though, Malachi. Courtney Gaines, I've seen him in a ton of movies. After this, I think I best knew him for The Burbs and Can't Buy Me Love. Yeah, Can't Buy Me Love is what I recognized him from. Yeah, he's the guy where they throw the shit on his house. I mean, he's worked as well, but he hadn't gotten his braces yet by this point. He's got a creepy looking ginger mullet going too. Yeah, it looked like he had braces. There was something wrong with his mouth. The way he talked, he's almost the opposite of Isaac. He's forceful, but unrefined with his delivery. Isaac, there's a refinery there. He feels like a prophet. This feels more like a military general just barking orders. They feel like parents to me. I mean, all the, all the adults are killed and these are the two that suddenly command all the orphans to me it feels like yeah isaac is the mother and malachi is the father i mean they call malachi when it's time to implement the punishment but the mother is the one that's got something to say about everything and it's just he's more effeminate too he's got that woman voice and yeah it's just a strange relationship they have i would be afraid of them too i understand why job doesn't go screaming out of there once he sees his father's throat slit you'd think that would be traumatic enough but no you do whatever these two told you to because they are super creepy. Now, what did you think about the violence here? Because one of the things that I didn't remember, but it hit me coming back, is you don't really see the violence. It reminded me a hell of a lot of the first Friday the 13th film, where the shots are all of, like, the neck down. You see, like, the meat cleaver coming down, but you never see it striking home. I still thought it was pretty effective. I think that is the most effective kind of violence, where you make it up in your head, where you think it's violent, until you really pay attention and realize you've imagined most of that. Yeah, like, psycho cutting uh, you know to me it's plenty violent that's whether we or not we see gore or not this is devastating this violence here it's it's awful and then i think that the implication of the rest of what they do is handled well as well because we have his sister job's sister sarah she didn't go to church that morning she's at home with a fever scrawling premonitions we'll find out that she's a psychic character that has crayon prophecies and so all of the rest of the murder there's like 900 people in this town we got a sign that says welcome to gatlin 968 people all of them are going to die they're not going to take their time to show all of that and i think they were queasy about showing little kids committing that kind of violence they wouldn't have wanted to do that it's handled very effectively that over the credits we just see little crayon dramas of people being beheaded and dragged into the fields yeah so jacob you said you wanted to know the backstory i mean this is definitely a way that it sucked me into the film i was excited by that backstory yeah and i want to know why these kids are revolting that with disciples of the crow 
I was wondering why did they start worshiping the corn or the crows? What was behind that? And that's what I want. And now we got a full length featured film. We got more than 20 minutes to tell me that story. I, I'm hooked into this first opening scene has really got me hooked. These crayon drawings, even that, it, you know, kind of telling the story through those credits. But where they really take away from the fantasy of this, because I think there's a delinquent part of kids that might be like, yeah we can take over for our parents, is they burn the TV and the electronics. That was not a fantasy. You wanted to kill your parents because they took away your Atari, not because, like, you wanted to go to tassel corn. This makes no sense that you're like, oh, now I got to grow my own food and I can't watch TV whenever I want. I mean, this kind of sucks. They're giving up a lot here. And here's something I'll admit. I watched this movie three times for this review. And there's some part of this movie that I don't know that it really drove home until, like, the second or third watching. But it's there in this crayon drawing is not only are they detasseling corn, they're setting up an ethanol plant. The whole big thing is to create fuel from corn, and one of the crayon drawings shows them hooking up a gas pump to the rose. This is a lot of work. <laughs> I got questions about the gas and the ethanol in this. We'll, we'll get there. But, you know, here's the thing. With this rejection of modern technology, I thought at the beginning of this film, yeah, we're getting, this is the extremities of Christianity. This is religion taken extreme. We're going to find out this is all devil worshiping eventually. But I thought that with these kids, you know, denying themselves that we as kids would enjoy, that it was going towards a more extreme fundamentalism, which turns out it's it's not going to go there. It, it seems weird that that's not what this film is about. Super Amish. That's the way I thought it was. More fundamental than thou. I agree. It feels like they're misinterpreting the Bible and taking it to an extreme that nobody would dare go to. And I'm into this film so far, and then we meet Vicky and Bert. And I'm a little bit excited when we are first introduced. I mean, Linda Hamilton, this was right before she'd make it big with Terminator, and I remembered liking her a lot in Terminator and everything. And then Peter Horton, I mean... Here's the other 30-something guy in a Stephen King movie. Yeah, probably the reason why Timothy Busfield signed up for Trucks is it turned out okay for his <laughs> co-star to do a Stephen King movie, I guess. But yeah, Peter Horton was, he was like the sexy hunk one of the 30-something cast. He was the single guy that wasn't tied down with a wife. I think they ended up killing him on the show in a car crash or something, but he was the rugged, dangerous one. I remember them presenting him in such a way. Here, he just seems like a big geek that's got to get home to his practice and doesn't want to have sex with his girlfriend. Well, come on. Did you see that performance that, you know, it's not literally happy birthday, Mr. President, but it's that kind of vibe that <laughs> Linda Hamilton's going for? Come on. I didn't have a boner during it either. Yeah, the school is out dance, not hot. Yes. I kind of liked it when she showed a little shoulder. I could have gone with it. Uh -huh. Listen, if 1980s Linda Hamilton crawled on top of me, no problem performing there. I don't know what his issue is. He doesn't want to commit. Okay, I can get that, you know, I understand that trope of a character play but when you're in a hotel room with your girlfriend and she's crawling on top of you and asking to just spend a few minutes there you don't tell the housekeeper we'll be right out <laughs> yeah hey he would have to pay extra for missing checkout and I'm not buying this excuse that they have to get on the road to get there he's a doctor now he can fly spend the money buy the ticket you <laughs> got the income. The fact that they have to drive this distance, I guess they're driving from the school where he got his medical degree to the place where his practice is going to be. It's an internship that he's going to, so he's not the boss yet, so I guess he still needs to be punctual. Yeah, he's graduated medical school, but he's still got to be an intern. I mean, he's not going to be a full-fledged private practice doctor for another 
six years or so. He's six years of slavery and working like 24-7. I mean, honestly, Vicky would be better off to find a lover on the side as much as she's going to see Bert. But... <laughs> Maybe I've watched way too much ER. <laughs> All I know is that if you got a doctor and you want to give him a gift, a, a lighter? Really? Cigarettes? This is what you want to promote to them? It's a different era, I guess. Well, first of all, I mean, my darling, MD, she had that initialed in there in the lighter. But also, the character was supposed to be a smoker. It would make sense at the end of the film, but Peter Horton couldn't even fake it, so you don't get to see him sucking on too many cigarettes this film. Okay, yeah, because exactly, he does not smoke cigarettes and you wouldn't think you'd want to push cigarettes on a medical professional. It's clearly one of those moments where you're just like, ah, you're giving him a lighter because he's going to burn something at the end of the movie. It, it telegraphed a climax. This is pretty much matching thus far Disciples of the Crow. I mean, they're even bickering while they drive and come on, this this isn't even fun bickering. This is just like she wants to get banged, he's too busy being a doctor to bang her and they're fighting. I do like the little scene where they, they turn on the radio and they're looking for something to listen to and all they could find in religious channels and they're kind of yelling along with the preacher but man this is just not a couple i want to watch this is bickering 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 but that radio preacher took me back to disciples of the crow and i'm like no room for those who defile the corn you know i was looking forward to that i'm not thinking they're that caustic. And truthfully, having read the Stephen King short story, which you can hear my review of at booksandnachos.com, mandatory plug, and seeing Disciples of the Crow, that is a caustic, toxic relationship between people who are ready to kill each other until children try to kill them. Here, this feels like a minor spat, and I just don't get what's up Bert's ass. Because, again, I get the commitment, but it seems like that's all she wants. Why are they moving to Seattle together if he's not committed? There's some logistic questions there, but I see them as a cute couple. And that was part of the director's intent was he felt King's writing was too caustic, too negative, too dark. He added some good kids to the script that weren't in King's draft. And he made this relationship a lot more toned down, which made it more appealing to me. Maybe it's just Bert's fault. He is so standoffish and does not want anything seemingly to do with this relationship it's yeah I, I don't want to watch this couple because at least half of them have no interest in the other half they're better than the story they're better than the dollar baby in that they're not as abrasive but that may be the wrong instinct i mean fighting means tension tension is a good thing in a horror movie if i were pulled into the fight if it had a welt to it every time they sparred i might be like ooh. but yeah this couple has been neutered they're just not very interesting period i don't have any curiosity about who they are as people and they don't have the same fate as the characters in the stephen king story and so that was a surprise to me i read that story too arnie and i thought this movie would end closer to the way the short story did and it does not. Oh, no. I remembered how this movie ended coming in. So, but we'll get to that in due time. But it does take some time to get this couple to the town. And one of the problems I think we've seen again and again going through these night shift stories is taking a 20 page short story, this one originally printed in Penthouse, and trying to stretch it out to 90 minutes. And boy, does it feel stretched because we really have them on the road and in the hotel. And it feels like this 
this movie is just taking forever when finally Joseph decides to run away and leave Job and Sarah behind and he's gonna run through the corn and try to escape and get help and he's the one who Malachi slits his throat. Yeah, you know, and then they eventually hit Joseph. Here's the thing, this feels like the dollar baby except everything's stretched out longer. It's taking just longer to get there. They're hitting all the same notes, they're just holding them for a longer count and man, it is dragging for me. I'm glad someone finally dies. I don't know how often I get to say that, but... You had a huge body count in the first five minutes, so more than one person. Yes, so did Disciples, and it just, this takes so long to get anywhere. Here's the thing, I think that this is a short story, unlike many in the Night Shift collection, that actually could make it to feature length. I don't think the screenwriter figures out the movie to tell in feature length. I think he basically tried to elongate a short story rather than fill in the questions that the short story only alluded to. What you have to be asking is, why? We needed to know why the kids were doing this. Why did he kill Joseph? I mean, there are opportunities to set up things that aren't on the page. What's funny to me is that they're just stalling, hitting the same beats as the short story. They don't want to create new dynamics, new scenes, and do all of that. So yes, you're right. This is exactly the same as it is on the page, as it is on the screen, but dragged out, stretched to a point that would be tedious for anyone. I mean, they even have a dream sequence here. She falls asleep after they run over the kid and then is woken (laughs) up from a nightmare. I'm like, really? You're going to have a cheap jump scare of her walking over to the body and then finding out that she just dozed off in the car? after you ran over a child? I don't think that's nap time. Yeah, was Malachi actually stalking her? Was that in the dream? I I get confused, and in the end, it doesn't matter. What they should be doing is they should be dropping hints. What's behind this corn cult? What is the mystery here? Let me try to pick up those hints and figure it out. Let me get engaged. Instead, no, it's not dropping hints from what I've seen in the beginning. It give me a bunch of answers at the very end, but I want it dropped throughout the film so I'm engaged and I'm trying to figure out the mystery. I am fine without the hints. Leave me hooked. I'm not hooked, though. What's hooking you? Well, you're hooked. You want to know the mystery. You don't need to dribble that out. And what's also hooking me is, again, and I want to contextualize this. This is 1984. It is the heyday of the slasher. Friday the 13th Part 4 would come out that same year, and... What you've got here is a lot of that kind of slasher thrills because you do have Malachi walking up to the car with the knife. And I actually really like the way it's shot where you see the knife reflection in the back of the rearview mirror and you think he's coming for her. You don't need a mystery about he who walks behind the rose. Let's just, at this point, take it as fundamentalism. That's what I did when I first watched it. I just thought they were religious nuts. But murderous religious nuts, the suspense comes from the slasher thrill of this guy just slit a kid's throat and now he's going to kill Vicky. Except it's not very suspenseful, Arnie. It's not done particularly well. And when you cheat and have that, oh, it was all a dream kind of thing, my arms are folded. I'm not leaning in to want to know more. I'm angry because this movie has resorted to the bottom of the barrel tricks from a slasher movie to elongate its runtime. Yeah, and I'm not a slasher film person. It's when it comes to horror, that's not my style of horror. And yeah, I, okay, there is some, I guess, thrill when Malachi's lurking around this car. But like you said, Stuart, it ends up being a dream. So now that throws it all out. Now I don't care. I don't think it was all a dream. I'm not sure exactly where Malachi went, but I do think Malachi was there with the blood dripping knife and approaching Linda. And then he just 
pussied out or something. Yeah, the guy who slid a kid's throat pussied out. Well, there was an adult man coming. Yeah, exactly. He wouldn't have had any opportunity to get her. They murdered all the parents in their town. I don't know. I don't see this guy backing down. Yeah, it's not a great introduction for Malachi's wrath. It starts really a chain of events that we'll find out is the wedge between him and Isaac, is that he's ultimately chastised for doing this and for killing the gas station attendant, who are the next time-stalling technique the screenwriters implement as Vicky and Bert slowly make their way to Gatlin. Yes, as they get lost and drive in circles and... Again, this could be effective. It's not effective in this film, though. There's no suspense. Oh, but again, I'm taken right back to Friday the 13th. Stuart, you got it right. This is Crazy Ralph from Friday the 13th. It's got a death curse. I mean, it is so perfect for this kind of movie to have him there. It's not perfect for this kind of movie because this movie told us they killed all the adults, but they're going to keep one old man around? Because of the gas. Isaac says we needed him for the gas? Okay, at the end, they're going to burn this cornfield with gas. Were they trying to fight the devil that was possessing it? Why did they need gas? No, they needed gas to run the farm equipment until their gas hall distillery was fully done. <laughs> so they were actually harvesting the yes. corn? They were farming. Okay. Yeah, what else would they be eating? I mean, this has been three years. It's worth pointing out. This hasn't been a couple of days. They've survived for three years in some kind of fashion. I mean, it stretches credibility. Yeah, they could just pick the corn, though. It's not like there's a ton of kids where they need to harvest it. And they burn many of their machines. They're very willy-nilly about what is the adult world that should be shunned and what should be kept. But yes, the idea is it's a 80s slasher movie, so you need an old man as an omen to don't go near this town, and because we need to kill five minutes and have another meaningless death in between. I'm not a fan of what they do with this gas station attendant. It wasn't in the story. It isn't need to be in this story it's just a way of wasting time i liked it for the death that it was again i'm just really being taken back to that early 80s slasher kind of feel halloween 2 and sort of thing and it's working for me to have the old man and like all the kids coming at him it is really giving me that creepy feel about them in numbers and the fact that first they kill his dog and then he's ready for the fight and it ends up with his throat slit i mean I don't get later on exactly why he who walks behind the rose is so pissed off they killed the old coot, but it was interesting to see the reversal of plays that the kids were keeping the adults on the leash and telling them what to do and punishing them if they got out of line. But it didn't seem he did anything worth dying. This is where Malachi's motivations seem a little thin to me. I don't know why this old guy just didn't drive away three years ago. He's got all the gas he needs. And, that, and that's my problem. I just, it seems like, I, I'm sure it's five minutes, seemed like 20 minutes though with this dog barking and this all drags for me. You're saying this is classic 1984 slasher stuff. I guess that's just not my thing then because none of this is holding my attention. It is, but it's not done particularly well. Let me put it this way. It's as good as most of it, which is, I guess, a way of saying it's rote and it's unimpressive. It does not go above what had been done in the genre. And I don't think it's necessary. There are enough questions waiting at Gatlin that we don't need to spend all of this time three miles away from Gatlin. And I'm confused. Do they want them to come there or not? Isaac, basically, at this time, finds out that Sarah is psychic. She has the gift. Sarah has drawn a crayon of the couple coming to their town. Are they wanting this couple to come? Is there some kind of prophecy being fulfilled here? I can't tell whether they want to trap them because they keep driving in circles and the signs keep 
keep pointing them back to Gatlin? Or wouldn't they want the adults away? Haven't they had this removed from maps? Haven't they had their whole existence excised from the outside world? I don't understand the relationship. My interpretation of the events was they didn't want the adults there, hence why they told the old man to send them to the other town. But what he who walks behind the rose told Isaac is they're coming. It is prophesized they will come. No matter what the old man tells them, they will come. And so since they're coming, we must capture them and give them as a sacrifice. No, they'll come because you have bad signage. I mean, they're ending up driving in the rows themselves. I mean, they're literally off. It's not even a dirt road. They're literally driving in crop fields. Though, if you've gone to the Midwest, there are like real roads like that. They're on maps and you're driving through corn rows. That has happened to me. All right. No, no, no. There, I live in the Midwest. That is not the case maybe in 84 but in south dakota it is in south dakota <laughs> in 2000 it's like that i have not been on any dirt roads surrounded by cornfields that did look like they got off the road into a corn maze they're trying their hardest to get to hemingford and the evil is trapping them in gatlin so i take it to mean that yes this satanic creature and we do know that there's something in the field at this point we've had pov shots there's something that wants to bring them here to have them be sacrificed i guess Yes. You know, I would have liked to seen something. We'll find out what he who walks behind the rose looked like. Does he knock the signs to point different ways? Does Malachi, because he has bloodlust and needs to kill some more adults, I would have liked something besides oh magic it's a prophecy so they're just something move the signs to direct them here they got lost magically i want some reason for them to end up there besides a crayon drawing well at this point in the movie though we're not even sure there is he who walks behind the rose there's pov shots i don't know if they're malachi's i mean they're not funky in any way they're just we're seeing the point of view of somebody standing in corn and at this point i think until at least the third act. No, Isaac preaches to the children right away that the Lord came to him in a dream and he names him he who walks behind the rose. Right. Which I don't know that that means that he actually exists. I think it's a story Isaac's making up. That's what I was about to say. Up until about the last act of the movie, I think he who walks behind the rose is a figment of Isaac's imagination and what he uses to keep the kids in line. Ah, I see. Okay. I thought for sure, well, you know, I read the story, so I thought they were going to honor that. I thought there was a monster in the field. Well, I mean, I saw this movie a dozen times. I knew there's a monster. I'm talking about looking at the movie and remembering my first time watching it. I was not expecting a monster. You know what would have helped me uh, get into that vibe more is if Isaac had renamed these kids. If, if they were all named like, you know, Skippy and Marvin, and then he gave them Malachi and Jebediah and all these Old Testament names that to me would say he's putting a brand his stamp on this town he's having an influence here honestly i don't know how he's holding it together these kids aren't really listening to him they're off playing make-believe in the house with the records they'd rather be anywhere else they're basically they just are looking for someone to come pick them up so when bird and vicky are arriving i'm thinking that most of the kids are probably ready to put down their size and go watch mtv see i think that's just job and sarah the two good kids quote unquote who don't listen to Isaac. I get that the rest of them, especially later on in the movie, we get to see one of their 18th birthday and they're all in the church and he's carving a pentagram into his chest. Most of the kids are following Isaac's letter of the law and farming their gas a hall. What's unfortunate is we really only get five kids. We get Isaac and Malachi, Job and Sarah, and then Joseph, who's killed right away. And of those five, three of them are not into Isaac's thing. <laughs> 
Right. And we don't get names for much of the other ones. Yes, later there's one having a birthday, which, by the way, it's Bert's birthday. So they're both having a birthday that day. But Amos is uh, having his 19th birthday. And there's another one. They, I don't think she ever got a name, or at least I never caught it. But there's like a psycho corn girl. Rachel. Oh, that's Rachel. Okay, yeah. She's sort of the giving the sermons in the old church. She'll pop up in the end of this movie as well. Yeah, so I think most of them were following the rules. But Job and Sarah, it's dropped, it's stupid, but it's dropped that they were in the field when he who walks behind the rose made themselves known. And so they were spared a lot of Isaac's wrath that the others may have been put to death for. Yeah, Sarah was homesick and Job was the only kid to go to church that week. All the rest ditched to go hide in the corn. Here's the thing. You got a lot of time. There's a lot to explain here that isn't in the short story. You're absolutely right. We needed to meet the other children. We needed to meet the believers and they needed to convince us why teenagers in the 1980s would subscribe to these highfalutin rules told by a midget. <laughs> and I'm not feeling so good about Bert and Vicky either because they hit a kid in the street. Now, I don't know what I would do, but I would like to think I would take my luggage out of the back seat and put the body in the back seat. Not just throw him in the trunk with the spare tire on top of some luggage to thud around back there and they go, oh, that's my golf clubs. It seemed a little crass of Bert to throw him in the trunk. Well, he is a doctor. He's been through gross anatomy. He's been around dead bodies. He's... <laughs> He's not so phased by it as maybe you or I would be. And they drive around letting this body fester in their trunk for, what, hours? I mean, all day. They finally decide they're going to Gatlin. It's a freaking ghost town. They're like, oh, well, there's a dead body in the trunk, but let's kind of look around here. They're looking for a hospital. To defend them, I think Bert would like nothing more than to get back on the road and get to Seattle by Monday, but they are looking for a morgue to drop this body off in. They've been told Gatlin doesn't have one, but after, yeah, being pointed in the wrong direction by numerous signs, they're here in Gatlin to find anybody that can take this body off their hands. And I'm waiting for anybody to kick the second act in gear, but this is a whole lot of wandering in the middle of this movie. There is way too much time. It's like playing Myst or something. I'm like, will something please come out and instigate a plot? It is funny because Bert says, things just aren't happening fast enough. And I'm like, yes, yes. yes. Yeah, I wrote amen. I wrote that quote down. And, you know, here's the thing. I think we complained about this in Disciples of the Crow, which is what, like 20 minutes? There's a lot of chase, and it's like, ah, uh, come on. Here, full-length feature film, the whole second act is like just people walking around this empty town. Like, at one point, Bert's like, I'm going to go check out City Hall. And then he stops at the school, then stops at the church. I'm like, I don't need to know the geography of this town. Let's just get on. Let's get to the final act. A whole lot of nothing happens here. Quite honestly, there is about 30 to 40 minutes of little development that at some point, Bert splits off from Vicky and she gets captured. But by and large, nothing is being learned or developed for 30 minutes of this movie. This should not have been the way you shot this as a feature. This would have been fine for a segment in the Creepshow movie, but at 90 minutes, this is far too stretched. I agree with you guys both. I mean, it's like, oh, look, there's children. Let's chase them with our car and nothing. Now, when Vicky gets captured... We're finally back in some action, but that's a long ways away. I like what that happens, though. She's like, what do you want? The way Malachi looks up and is like, we want to give you peace. I mean, I just really like that delivery. I think Malachi is very creepy. And 
Vicky getting overpowered like that. I mean, it really goes back on Bert because she's like asked Bert right before he left, are we safe here? Oh yeah, it's a little creepy, but safe. And then a whole bunch of murderous children come and steal her. I like that. But yeah, I mean, we're skipping over 20 minutes of the movie where nothing happens. I think that they were just afraid that they'd break the spell that if they show too much of the kids, that it would demystify them. They're scary because they're just kind of hovering in the background and we don't know what they think and we don't know what they're going to do. We we know what they're capable of. We know what they're going to do with that axe, but we don't know what sacrifice is about. But by withholding that mystery and by only making Bert and Vicky the characters that are points of interest, there's just nothing going on. That Bert and Vicky aren't interesting. We don't need to spend that much time with them. We need to get with Malachi. We need to get with with Isaac, we need to know what's going on. You know, there is some interesting imagery when they're walking around. I wish I got it more concisely. There's that picture of Jesus that's all scratched up and creepy looking. That's when I know, okay, this isn't fundamental Christianity. This is, why would they defile a picture of Jesus? There's something more going on here. We get this idea of the blue man, this crucified withered corpse of a cop on a cornstalk cross. Like, yeah, show me kids doing these weird rituals. Give me something creepy. You know, and when I'm watching this in the dark later, at night that would be kind of off-putting instead of just walking around this empty town are they communists that's what i wondered you know it's an 80s movie and the poster's like stark red with a sickle or whatever i'm just like there's some kind of like ussr imagery going on here it's a collective they're living in a commune literally and they've thrown out the classic religion i wondered if maybe that was a thought on here i don't know that this movie has subtext but i was digging for it and that was really the only thing i could come up with i don't think it has subtext i mean beyond just the blood red of the harvest i don't see it i mean if you want to put it there i kind of can see it now but i mean they killed religious people i mean that is like the pogroms of russia and they've implemented a agrarian society in which they're all equal supposedly and but they're not well there's a czar there's a little czar that's going to tell them what to do but yeah it's i get the sense that this could be read as communism in the heartland of america it's red dawn in a different light i wish this film was that interesting <laughs> I, I wish there was that subtext i'm trying believe me there was enough time i had to dig for something because there's nothing to do and there's nothing scary about this i'm not sure that those pictures of jesus were defiled they might have just pimped him out with corn husks i couldn't tell whether they were enrapturing him with the corn imagery corn can we just talk about that other than doritos I don't know why anybody would get that excited about corn. Anyone. It's ridiculous how a cult could be built around ears of corn. Well, keep in mind, I mean, corn is a hugely profitable crop. There's seed corn, there's feed corn. I used to be employed at an internet company owned by a corn baron. Believe it or not, this guy was a third generation corn billionaire. And so I also look at this from Stephen King's biography and the fact that he'd moved to Colorado for a period and then was moving back. He wrote The Stand and Children of the Corn about the same time. There's a lot of corn imagery. The fact that you can get lost in corn, that it's a huge crop that you can really, it grows above people. I could see where he finds fascination in that everyday life. It's certainly more scary than he who walks behind the soybeans. 
<laughs> you know, I, I've driven through Nebraska. It's very boring, just like it depicted in this film, but there's lots of corn. And I think corn is it is a symbol of the heartland. And I think one thing in a lot of horror films, you have this urbanization versus the rural thing going. So sometimes the, the horror comes from the urban side. Sometimes it comes from the rural. But you always have someone from one side going into the other one. So here we have the city folk from going to Seattle, going into this rural society. And I think corn is the perfect symbol for that. Yeah, it feels like Texas Chainsaw Massacre as vegetarianism. Yeah, that literally, they don't want meat this time. They just want to grow their corn and they're going to kill any adult that comes in there. Yes, it definitely is a fear of rural communities. I'm wondering what we're supposed to be afraid of here. It's fear of rural communities. It's a fear of munchkins and evil children, which was a fear already exploited in The Omen. In fact, the score here is a complete and terrible ripoff of the wonderful Jerry Goldsmith Oscar-winning Omen score. I'll agree with complete, but I love the score. It's not terrible. It's terrible to me because it's so shameless in its thievery of Jerry Goldsmith. But it's atmospheric. It absolutely works for this story. But I know where it's coming from. And they ripped him off terribly. But again, why would I watch this when I could watch The Omen? What is it about this cult of children that's more scary than the Antichrist. I'm waiting to find that out. Isaac is scarier than Damien. And he would be if he remained the figure in power but he's dethroned in the middle of this movie. He is called out for the poser that Malachi thinks he is. But he's not a poser. Now Malachi I believe doesn't even believe in he who walks behind the rose. He's the one who like you're saying Stuart he's just happy to be rid of parents, happy to be rid of authority. When he finds himself under another thumb, this time Isaac I don't think he believes in the prophecies. I don't think he believes that Isaac is hearing what he says he's hearing. I don't know that anyone other than Isaac has ever had proof that he who walks behind the rose is anything more than a story Isaac is telling, which is why Malachi and his goons are so happy to string Isaac up. They're like, all right go, die, we're gonna kill you now through crucifixion. But it turns out that there really is a plan going on here. There is an evil demon behind there who is making them do these sacrifices. Is this demon a giant worm? Is this Tremors? <laughs> it moves the same way as Tremors. You know what else it does? It also moves the same way as Evil Dead. Whereas either of you getting an Evil Dead flashback when like the corn tassels started to wrap around Bert's legs and all of that. It's worth pointing out they did approach Raimi to direct this. No, I didn't know that and I didn't think about that, but I can see it now. Sure. I just want to put it out there. Horror filmmakers around the world, you gotta have less syllables. If this is your villain, he that walks behind the rose too long. I'm just gonna call him Hubie or Hubie <laughs> Thoreau. <laughs> Hubie is what I'm calling him from now on. But yeah, Hubie, I need to know about Hubie as we get into the third act. What does Hubie want for these sacrifices? Is this just willy-nilly? Is he just playing these kids? Or when they obey him, does he reward them with good crops? Will killing Bert and Vicky get them next year's food supply? Why are you asking questions that are never going to be answered? Well, we got eight more films. <laughs> Maybe they'll get answered there. That's the thing. Like, I'm waiting. What is the mystery behind this cult? Oh, it's the devil? I think. Yeah. Just fooled a bunch of kids. That seems like an easy target to fool kids. Like, step up your game, Satan. Go after smart people. Isaac should be Hubie. That's what I'm going to argue here, is that we have a really scary central figure, as good as a guy in a hockey mask, as good as a guy with a knife glove. We can go with Isaac here. Why do you have to neuter him and make him look like a chump up there on the crucifix getting eaten by animation and coming back with the white hair and all of that? It's just too bad, because they 
they actually had their horror figure and they'd rather play in the corn than pay attention to what this actor is doing with Isaac. Now, I will say, I like Isaac getting strung up as the mutiny. The children revolted against their previous authority figures. The children revolt against Isaac. Obviously, they didn't realize that in Isaac they had their Freddy Krueger or their Norman Bates. But, when you talk about that cartoon that comes and gets him, oh my lord. Now, even the director admits oh. that this is an embarrassing thing that was done as the result of finishing the movie and having no money. Mm. But, wow, does that look just abhorrent. Whatever mood this movie had over me with Isaac and his being up there and continuing to preach and Vicky and I love Malachi's screams of Outlander as he's got Vicky in the town but all of that that had me the moment that Hanna-Barbera animation rides up to encompass... I thought it was Sarah coloring it with her crayon. <laughs> it's almost that bad. <laughs> when he looks down from the crucifix and just sees this yellow mass I'm like, is that on the ground? Is that under the ground? What am I even seeing? It is shit and really embarrassing. They could have done better just by like flubbing some smoke and pretending he went up in flames than this. No, no, no. Just take a page from Spielberg. The shark did not work. He had to use the camera as the killer. Why can't we just have what we have in any slasher movie from the period? We have a POV moving through the rows, him sucked beneath the corn. You use the fields like you would the ocean in Jaws, and you just have a fin. You know, you just imply the coming of Hubie. You do not show Hubie if this is what Hubie looks like. You never show this. The other side of it, though, is again, this is 1984. What massive horror movie came out in 1984? Nightmare on Elm Street, where they did the same goddamn thing, where when Freddy's beat, he just becomes this ray of animation light. It's the thing to do to up the game in 84. Sure, a fin works in 74. This is a decade later. So, animation? Wrong. Wrong answer. Yeah, my biggest problem is what they do with Isaac. He should become more powerful. Mm -hmm. You're right, Stuart. He should be Hubie, as you're calling him. This is like watching Freddy pick up a glove with knives on and go, nah, that's corny. I'm going to put that down and choose another weapon. This is like Jason putting on a catcher's mitt instead of a hockey mask. Like, they threw away the best part of this film, which is Isaac. Well, he does come back, and I love it when he comes back. You do? Because the big question was, is he who walks behind the rose truly mad at Malachi? like Isaac says and the way he comes back and the way they modulate his voice Malachi <laughs> he hilarious. to Malachi I love that and unfortunately though that's the last we see of Isaac until 666 but I at that point think he is he who walks behind the rose I refuse to call him Hubie <laughs> And I think he's empowered. He's got like these demon horns and he's got supernatural strength. He was supposed to lift Malachi up and throw him through the field. And then they found out we don't have the money for the rig. So he snaps his neck. But I like that right there. Unfortunately, I guess Isaac burns up when Bert and Job in an incredibly sexist thing. They go to a barn, leave the women there, but the eight-year-old boy can go out to help set the field on yes. fire. I didn't think this couple were going to make it. They die in the story, and I thought that they would die here. I thought the little kids would get away. I thought that Bert and or Vicky would sacrifice themselves to give these kids a shot out of getting out of town. I was surprised that they become this family that sort of rallies together, almost like a PG movie at this point. It feels like some kind of Disney film where they rally to get yeah the fields on fire and Bert can't throw a Molotov cocktail so the kid has to go out there and get it so he can throw it again. I love his bitchy little throw it right this time. 
time. <laughs> Bird obviously spent more time in classrooms than on the baseball field. And this is why it's confused over the whole gasoline thing. Yeah, they just burn the field thanks to the kids having their own ethanol stock. And him getting that lighter. See, Vicky had a point. She got him a lighter <laughs> yes. for his birthday. She has been redeemed as a character. Maybe he'll bang her now. <laughs> just maybe. Listen, thank you. <laughs> I will say this. As cheap as this movie is, the explosion's pretty great. The pyrotechnics, when it finally goes off, I was surprised after that cheap animation that they got the money for the flames. The face, that's another issue. But I do feel like they were trying to get back the king with this ending here. Although not Children of the Corn, I think this is the original ending of The Shining that we're seeing here. When the Overlook burns, it's got this shapeless kind of monstrosity and they finally see the evil that was possessing Jack and had all the ghosts going around attacking Wendy and Danny. This is sort of a callback to that. This is what King was trying to do on the page. I hadn't really put that together because I knew this animated face way too well to think about that and it's described as insect-like with the overlook. But yeah, I mean, you could see that in that regard. I'm honestly not sure if that was the intent. Maybe this is something from King's original treatment because King has been known to reuse an idea or two and he did do the original draft of this script that got heavily rewritten but maybe that is a callback to that. All I see is something that basically looks like the face on the Necronomicon in a Bugs Bunny cartoon though. Yeah, you want to talk about Disney. They, Vicky and Bert saved the day. This ending, I, I guess there's one last scare with Rachel if that's a scare. It looks like Vicky just kind of rolls her eyes. Uh, you gotta have the jump back. You gotta have that moment where we think Carrie He's dead, and then the hand pops out. You gotta have something pop up to say, we gotcha. And I think that's what this pathetic corned car finale is supposed to be. <laughs> Actually, the director specifically said that the dream sequence body on the road was intended to be the carry hand. And this is just the final danger is not there, but they beat her so easily. They just conquer in the head with a car yeah. door. That's kind of, but hey, Vicky gets something to do. I was actually pissed that you got Linda Terminator Hamilton left in the barn. When Rachel comes out at the end, it's Vicky who saves the day. Do Vicky and Bert, they adopt Job and Sarah? Like, they have this sitcom ending. Well, I guess you guys could stay with us for a day. Make it a week. Make it a month. Like, what is this ending? <laughs> this is Bert's character development. He is now ready to commit to a family because of the shared trauma of seeing he who walked behind the rose. I mean, this is the happy ending the director wanted tacked onto this was that they would find redemption and family and commitment through their trials and tribulations. It's lame. I, I guess if Bert adopts a couple of kids, he doesn't have to bang Vicky. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what he really wants, is to avoid sex. Yeah, that is the message of Children of the Corn. Don't have sex with Linda Hamilton. <laughs> hey, she saves the future with her offspring in Terminator. You just gotta pick your franchise. Well, do you pick this franchise? Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Children of the Corn? Jacob. Well, I'm a host for now playing, so I, I don't get a choice. I will be watching all nine of these. After this first one, I would assume, going into this franchise, there is the most hope with this first film. And oh, how sadly disappointed I am. It, it has a pretty good start. I like that opening slasher scene. Isaac's a good villain. And it all goes to waste. I mean, most of this, the biggest problem with this film is it's just boring. It's not bad animation aside. I, I'll take the bad animation if there's stuff going on but man so much of this film is just people walking around they really took all that walking around which was too much for that 
20 minute dollar baby and they stretched that out into a 90 minute film it drags and there might be some action at the beginning and end but man that second act just puts you to sleep and the final thing I mean the devil or whoever Hubie is when you got it so poorly animated when you got it just so poorly done I, I stopped caring I, I said I wanted to know the mystery behind this cult nope sorry I asked I take my question back when it comes to a recommend for this film no room no room for a recommend <laughs> not recommended Stuart Jeez, you know, this should not be a high bar to do better than in the sequels. I honestly have some hope that it's going to get better, and I don't know how, but it must, because this is a terrible way to start a nine-part franchise. I am beside myself at how bad this ended up being. I was hoping that it would be creepy. I was hoping that it would have something here. Well, it has certain things, and so to help me get through the next eight shows, I'm going to just come up with new ratings. I think they're all strong, not recommend red arrows. So I have a new system. Colonel, Husk, or Pat of Butter. You know, does it have something in it that's worth anything? Then it gets a kernel. If there's nothing to it, it's a husk. And if I laughed at it or with it, it's a pat of butter. And this one, I'm going to give it a kernel. I mean, there's some things here that are effective. That opening is still kind of a grabber. Isaac is a creepy kid. There is something about... Seeing a desolate town here that strikes a chord that Wicker Man and Texas Chainsaw Massacre also strike. But humorless. This movie has no sense of humor, which is rare, I think, in 80s horror. The pacing is agonizing. I can't tell you how badly my fingers wanted to press the fast-forward button on this. This should have been a short, and it probably would have gotten a recommend. But as it is, Red Arrow, I'll give it a kernel, but it's not good. It is no classic. It is nothing to launch a franchise. I disagree with what you said about 80s slashers, especially of this era, having humor. They hadn't gone into that self-mockery yet. That really launched about two years after this with Jason Lives. Friday the 13th, 5 and before. Nightmare on Elm Street, 2 and before. Not a lot of humor. Halloween 2. Halloween 3 had no intentional humor. So I think this is of the time. And that's kind of how I have to look at this. As I look at this movie, and I agree with what Stuart and Jacob said. Especially the second act of this drags so badly. It is really, really painful, and I completely understand, Stuart, your desire to grab that fast-forward button. When I was watching this the third time, I was watching it with the little pop-up video info facts for now playing research, and if I'd hit fast-forward, it wouldn't show me the little bubbles, so I had to watch it in real time three times, and yeah, that second act is bad. And the rest of it, at its highest points, becomes middling horror. I see this, and I see some of those early Friday the 13th, really shots almost directly stolen from Friday the 13th, and concepts like the old coot giving them warnings. And I see a little bit of the first evil dead in the corn here, and I'm just torn. But you know what's going to make me give this? I almost want to give it a yellow arrow for corn, but I'll give it a faint, faint green arrow, is John Franklin and Courtney Gaines. Isaac and Malachi, they give really memorable performances in an otherwise forgettable film. And it's forgettable. It's not shit. It's forgettable. But with those two, there's just enough there to make me say, this movie is worth seeing. For those creepy kids, it's worth the doldrums of the second act. So yeah, I'm going to give this one a recommend. 
So, just a question for you. Is it the performance of Isaac and Malachi? Because I don't think the performances are very good at all. Or is it just the way that they look and sound? Because that's what's unnerving. I don't think that they're actually scary by anything they say or do. It's just they look like freaks. The way they deliver their lines really works for me. But yeah, they the look, the sound, their entire embodiment of corn evil works for me. They are the Freddy Krueger of this series, and it scares me that we have five installments before John Franklin comes back and Courtney Gaines, well, he went to work on Can't Buy Me Love. I don't think we're going to be seeing him again. So we're getting Isaac back eventually. I didn't, I don't think I even realized that. Yes, part 666, which does oh. not mean 666. Oh, <laughs> I'm like, I quit. I'm going to go a Malachi on you. You cannot make me watch this movie 665 times more. No, just eight more, but yeah, it may be that I have a soft spot in my heart for this being one of those movies I grew up with. I do think it's, even though it's R-rated, it's horror about children for children to me. I think that the violence being so implied and off-screen, this probably could be PG-13 nowadays, realistically. Not that first scene. I think it's the diner scene that makes that improbable. If we saw more knives in flesh, maybe, I think you could get away with that level of implied violence in PG-13. And because I watched this as a preteen, it's something that stuck with me. But even watching it today as an adult, Isaac and Malachi for the win. Green, very faint green, but green arrow. Well, somebody had to do it, but uh, it wasn't going to be me. And the question really is, is anybody going to go there again for the next eight podcasts? We will have to find out. I've got my kernel pad of butter or husk ready. I think it's going to be a lot of husks. I'm hoping there's some butter. I hope there's some funniness. But I'm wondering if we're going to see anything that is remotely scary or creepy in the movies to come. Maybe it will be better that way. Maybe they'll go for camp laughs eventually, and I won't have to judge it in terms of a horror movie. It'll just be whether it made me smile or not. Well, for me, I have not seen most of these films. I don't remember Children of the Corn 2, but it's the one I saw that made me decide I didn't want to rent 3, 4, 5, or 6, even 666. And then I did see the sci-fi remake, but remember very little about it as well. So I'm as always, the optimistic co-host of Now Playing, who hopes that something's going to pull it off to make it explain why there's nine of them. Because I agree, on this first one, it's a faint green arrow, but I wouldn't be sitting around going, let's go for the sequel, let alone nine. Right. And they weren't. It's going to take a long time. Eight years is a millennia in terms of horror movie franchises to get a part two. They missed the 80s. When we're coming back, it's in the early 90s. We know how many slashers from 1992 we love. Well, we will talk about that next week. And until then, if our listeners want to hear something besides corn for the next nine weeks, we also have hobbits and leprechauns. Starting this Friday, our platinum donors get three podcasts in one day reviewing all three animated Lord of the Rings films from the 70s and early 80s. Then starting next Friday, the Lord of the Rings live action series begins for silver level donors. And the week after that, Leprechaun for gold level donors. You can find all the details at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com, by clicking the button, support our show at the bottom of our homepage. And also, if you enjoyed this show, please head to iTunes, leave us a five-star review. It really helps let us know that you're enjoying the show, as well as telling other people to give our show a try. 
You can find the link to iTunes even if you don't use it. You can leave us a review for free and find a link from our homepage at nowplayingpodcast.com. And until next week, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me here behind the rose. And Malachi, we'll be back next week, Malachi. We'll be back next week. I'm leaving now. I'm going to go find some people and tell them about what's happening here in Gatlin. I don't think they'll believe me at first. I don't think I believe it myself. But they will. Eventually. You guys all belong in an asylum somewhere. Looney Ben. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. Congratulations, Tiger. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You know what's all you need now that The Sopranos is dead and buried? <laughs> Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another film based on Stephen King's books and short stories. This is the word of he who walks by in the rose. We do this work for Shine Shadow. At our sister podcast, booksandnachos.com, you can hear Arnie's reviews of the original Stephen King books and short stories on which these films are based. You should look it up. You still remember how to read, don't you? In the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find many more reviews of Stephen King films, including Maximum Overdrive, The Mangler, Sometimes They Come Back, The Lawnmower Man, Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, and more. Find dozens of Stephen King movie reviews at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Well, these kids watch too many horror flicks. Also at our website, you can find reviews of film series such as The Avengers, Star Trek, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Silent Night, Deadly Night, Scream, Transformers, Robocop, and hundreds more. Movies are filled with violence, blood, and bodies, naked bodies, flying together, glorifying fornication. Support from listeners like you help keep now playing operating. Can't you for one moment conceive of something in this universe that's larger than you? You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Two hundred dollars. Uh-uh, Joby. How much? Thirteen thousand hundred dollars. Thirteen thousand hundred dollars. Uh, okay, two thousand. Now Playing's Children of the Corn retrospective series is edited by Heath, Casper, and Arnie. I don't want to be the one in charge when the heads start doing 360s and a hurling pea soup. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. He filled me with the words. The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its original copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Now Playing podcast is not affiliated with the makers or distributors of these films. That won't matter to Isaac and Malachi. They'll take it as a sign. You speak for the others or only for yourself. The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. I am the word and the giver of his laws. Disobedience to me is disobedience to him. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. So what do we do about the children? Tell their story. Let the healing begin. It's not too late for that, is it? No.
So a lot of those movies that you promised listeners are more iconic and perhaps a little better than some of the manglers and... Oh, I'm stuck on Mangler. Sometimes they come back, come back. You forget the rest of it. I can go. I can remember for you. Maximum Overdrive, <laughs> Graveyard Shift, and Trucks. All I see is something that basically looks like the face on the Necronomicon in a Bugs Bunny cartoon, though. Did the Bugs Bunny read the Necronomicon? <laughs> I think you mixed your metaphors there. That would be a better movie than this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's all, folks. <laughs> 